Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Now available at all your finest retailers, please go buy copies. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, we're going to pick right back up where we left off. We've got your feedback coming through, and actually a lot of feedback here in this episode. Before we go into the pub and cover, well, some bad news and some good news and some other news that all seem to be related to beer. Um, and in the brewery, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff that we've been playing with and also something very interesting that looks like it's coming from uh, Lollamond. And then we get to uh, head over to the lounge where we do a beer tasting with our good friends Jeff and Susan Rankert trying some Pilsner that they sent us. Yes, a mecha-grade Pilsner, in fact. Yep, but before we do any of that, we're going to take a quick break here so we can hear from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody. Before we kick into high gear, we want to let you know that uh, there's a new episode of The Brew Files out, episode 91, Scott's Hops Part 2, where Drew talks to Scott Janish about some of the new uh, hopping theories and techniques that are really, really gaining a lot of popularity, and deservedly so. And so now you can actually find out why the two-day dry hopping thing works for homebrewers. So I would definitely recommend people give it a listen. And then don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our channel because, which for this part of the year is... It is almost narrowed down and decided. We're down to just a couple choices, and in the next episode, we're going to let you know where your money's going, but it's going to be uh, some sort of uh, relief, help fund for people doing good things for other people. There you go. And now it's time for your feedback. feedback. And our first piece of feedback is actually, well, there was a lot of feedback about this, so we're just going to summarize a little bit, use one letter, and I'm going to talk about what everybody said. You all will remember that in the last episode, I had mentioned about floating dip tubes and people's experiences with them. And so Ken Collins from Kentucky had written in, and he said, I only use them for light-colored beers like lagers and pilsners, and they're easy to use. I haven't had any trouble with either one. By pulling beer from the top, you get clear beer much quicker than pulling from the bottom of the keg. 
Possible downside is getting contamination from the silicone tubing, maybe. Plus, for loggers and pizzlers, I want them to be crystal clear, especially when serving them to friends and family. I also find with gelatin, and that helps too. If you're not in a hurry to get clear beer, maybe they're not worth the trouble and the extra cost. The clear draft system is better made than the more beer floating dip tube and should last longer, most likely. And this was kind of a reoccurring theme in a lot of things. So the more beer system is like 17 bucks for per keg, you know, so 17 bucks for the torpedo system to go into each of your kegs. Whereas the clear beer draft system bit was more like 40 bucks. So substantially more expensive. And I saw different comments about people about different usability. The one for the torpedo is very lightweight and people were worried about, you know, whether or not it was going to stay floating correctly. The clear beer one apparently works very, very well, except for then in a lot of people's comments about it was things about how it might get twisted around the line or it made doing like sort of the, the good old fashioned keg purge that we've talked about again and again, uh, a lot harder to pull off because you'll leave like sanitizing liquid down the bottom of the keg. Cause again, the dip tube doesn't go all the way down the bottom keg, so you're not drawing from the, the gunk that's collected at the bottom. So these are kind of interesting. I'm, I'm not sure I'd want to pay 40 bucks for a keg to be able to pull clear beer from it earlier. I may just keep leaving things in the uh, in the kegerator longer. But of course, I mean, it's still it's an interesting idea, and I might just get one just to play with anyway. So I wanted to say thank you to everybody for actually... Uh, give me your feedback. You know, I got to say that it sounds like it may solve one problem while it creates others. Uh, That's usually uh, the case. I, I just don't think I'm going to be going there. There you go. All right. And then our next piece of feedback comes from Greg Herpel about brewing during a pandemic. And actually, we've got a couple pieces in here, too. Uh, Greg says, I would definitely say it has helped me escape some of the downfalls of quarantine. My wife and I have mostly kept ourselves separated from friends and family as our son is considered high risk and most of our hobbies have been halted or converted to some virtual version of it as somebody who's high risk. Thank you. Brewing has always been my solo hobby. So when I get a chance, it really helps me relax mentally. Hard to think about all the bad things when formulating recipes and executing a brew day. I recently took a day off from work to brew three batches in one day, which was crazy fun, though maybe a little physically taxing. Yeah. Jeez. Really, man? Uh, I've started doing two and a half gallon brew in a bag batches on the stovetop with a 30 minute mash and boil as I don't have the time to do a full weekend day like I used to pre-kid. But this has also led me to experimenting a lot more. Dry hopped kettle sour? Sure. A crazy smoky rye brown lager for my 30th birthday? Why not? When I have too much, I'll give the excess to my family members dropping something off at the house or social distance meetings, and that adds to the joy of it a bit. I also think brewing has helped with the pandemic, as we always have to be mindful of sanitation and cleanliness during a brew day. Now that mindset is being applied on an everyday basis. Good point. Cool, Greg. It's nice that you've been able to uh, find something to help you out through this time. Well, and I think the talk about like doing those two and a half gallon batches, that's exactly one of the reasons why I think that's a great idea. Because two and a half gallons, you can muster your way through two and a half gallons of almost anything. I also think that two and a half gallons is a relatively low cost at attempting something. So, yeah, it is a good idea to have the ability to do those smaller batches just to be able to play around more. And then our second piece of feedback about brewing during a pandemic, and this is going to lead us into something that we want to do because it's a good idea. It comes from Alton Stevens, who says, thank you guys for the podcast. As we've made it to October and have been in lockdown for quite a while... Homebrewing and listening to podcasts about our most refreshing hobby have kept me sane. Let me count the ways. First, through refreshment. 
The product quenches the thirst and it tastes great. This is true. Second, through making idle hands busy, all the preparation and brewing and resulting cleaning. Third, and I feel most importantly, (laughs) listening to the podcast at work. The noise-canceling headphones and 8-10 to hours a day of podcasts are a true lifeline. They allow me to focus on my work and ignore the interactions around me. I'm on batches 19 and 20 now that are in my keyser, a Janet's Brown Ale and a Vanilla Bourbon Porter. Hey, I've made one of those before. One or two or three or five or ten. Yeah. Both delicious. I think it would be interesting to have a show that looks at what your listeners have been brewing. And Alden, I agree, so we're going to include in the show notes a link so that people can tell us what they've been brewing, and I think we'll turn that into a show to talk about, well, if there are any trends or any interesting ideas that you people are popping up. So Yeah, maybe we'll even call somebody up and talk to them. There you go. So just keep an eye out. We will include a link to where you can actually import your results or give us your results about what you've been brewing. It'll be in the show notes. We'll also put it out on social media because I like the idea of finding out what you guys have been doing. And now our third and final piece of feedback, or category feedback, I should say. Uh, this one comes from Alex Steffens from Berlin. Hello, Alex. Um, and he is actually writing on two topics. One was undermodified malt and the other one was software. So first of all, uh, Denny asked the audience for undermodified malt and used diastatic power as the indicator for a malt's degree of modification. As I understand it, the degree of modification is visible in the degree of solubility in the grain's contents rather than the diastatic power. For example, best malt's spitz malt, uh, which is a, he says in English is chit malt, okay, good to know, is made by reducing the amount of growth the grain has before it is kilned. This results in less soluble starches, more work for enzymes during the mash to get the same extract, and a higher protein content. If you look at the diastatic power, though, it is quite high. Disclaimer, I am not a maltster, just a homebrewer who has had a look at malting and malted one small batch at home. What you guys say there, bud? Uh, interesting. I'm going to have to go do some reading and research. I don't uh, necessarily disagree with Alex, but I still think that there's a relationship there somehow. Well, uh, but you know what, man? I've been wrong once or twice before. Never. Well, but I do think the other thing is we have to remember that enzymatic content and all that's also going to vary based on malt variety as well as the treatment. You know, so... Again, yeah, there are lots of, lots of different factors in here. So, yeah, I'd be curious to get a better understanding of the the relationship. If anybody out there knows, I'm assuming some of you guys do, give us a shout. All right. Yeah. And then, Alex, the second point was, uh, secondly, you talked about uh, brewing software. However, you didn't mention one that I've been seeing pop up a lot lately. It is called Brewfather, and it has made me quite happy as it provides everything Beersmith was missing for me. And, yeah, I have been seeing Brewfather pop up more recently. Uh, I tested it out while still putting everything in Beersmith just to see how they compared, and I've happily made the change a couple of weeks ago. I think you should give it a shot. It has a 30-day premium free trial, too. I like free. Just to mention a couple of features that I love about that one, distinction between recipe batches, more accurate water calculation that lets you include slash exclude several salts, very intuitive and responsive user interface. It is cloud-based, but can still be used offline. It supports a lot of gadgets. For example, my tilt hydrometer draws the fermentation graph right inside the batch. Controlling the grandfather right from it is being tested right now, etc., etc., etc. The developer is very active, and there are tons of features added still. So there you go, another another piece of software to add into your pile, unless you're Denny, who will stick to his beloved ProMash until the day his floppy disks stop working. Uh, hey, man, 
that doesn't come on a floppy disk. You can't even get it anymore. <laughs> but if you could, it would come on a floppy disk. I know. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I guess personally, I don't see any need to change when I'm using software that I know inside out and that does everything I need to do. If you're not in that situation, then this is definitely something you should check out. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like the getting the access to some more updated you know, calculations and methodologies for things or where people are doing like, you know, for not just, I think what, like, uh, uh, Pro, uh, ProMash and God, it's been years. ProMash allows you to do first work hop calculations, right? But there's nothing in there for like, say, uh, Whirlpool IBU calculations or anything like that. It's just no, a thing no. That and it, that's one of those things that uh, I don't care about because I don't do Whirlpool editions anymore. Well, I know, but I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but again, if if you have different needs than I do, it's definitely something to take a look at. Yep. Uh, but, you know, it's like for me, I've gone to dry hopping because it gives me a lot more than I got out of Whirlpool hops. There you go. All right. And so, again, that is Brewfather. You can add Brewfather into the pile of brewing software out there uh, that people are using. So, uh, like I've been using both Beersmith and uh, Brewer's friend, and now so you got Brewfather, and Denny, of course, uh, probably his uh, floppy disk of ProMash from his cold dead hands. <laughs> yeah, man, it's like, you know, it, it works. Uh, I'm not a FOMO kind of guy, so uh, I really don't need to do anything else just because it's new and different. There you go. And speaking of new and different, how about we go have a beer? Hey, that's something not new or different. So sure, let's go do it. Stick around, we're going to be right back after these messages. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back, and don't forget, if you have any interaction with any of our sponsors, be sure to let them know that you heard about them here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. We have made our way over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace these days. 
and we're having a couple beers, and it sounds like you've got something pretty interesting and different there. Right. So listeners will remember that my homebrew club, the Maltos Falcons, we've been doing uh, virtual happy hours for eons. And every week what we've been doing in order to support our local breweries is we've been running sort of a, a Pony Keg Express where we buy a whole bunch of packs of beer from the various breweries and they'll make a mixed four pack for us right you know so everybody's doing cans these days and we'll get four different beers and then on friday after the beers have been distributed around la we'll all get together in a zoom room and we'll have a have one of the brewers from the brewery come on and we'll taste and talk about each of the beers right you know it's a little bit of normal nerdery in a in a not so normal time and this past week we just did el segundo brewing company and we past two big milestones, both setting a record for the number of four-packs sold, you know, with, I think, 70 that week, and surpassing over a 1,000 four-packs sold during this whole period of time, and raising almost $16,000 for our local breweries. And Wait, so, you're, not, you're not selling four-packs, are you? No, no, no. The club members are, are buying the four-packs. Okay, so a 1,000 four-packs bought, not yep. sold. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, bought by the club membership. And so the, this week's lucky victim was uh, El Segundo Brewing Company. Uh, and El Segundo Brewing Company makes, to my mind, some of the best hoppy beers that you can find down here in L.A. And they had a beer in the mix, and we're going to talk more about it in the brewery, because I really want to uh, download some of the information that it kind of intrigued me on it, uh, called Seco IPA. You know, and so Seco is uh, you know, dry, right? Dry IPA. And by the time we had had it, it had been canned the previous day so it was one day old when we tasted it in the can uh and it is it is everything that i that i think people want to really have in a sort of a hazy juicy ipa minus all the stuff that i don't want to have in a hazy juicy ipa (laughs) (laughs) like the hop burn yeah no hop burn but big round fruitiness big uh, big sort of uh, pineapple and also some centennial and so like this nice pineapple uh, Columbusy type thing or sorry this nice pineapple uh, pine thing and it just overall very very impressive beer and we'll dig into it more into the brewery because it's got me thinking and how about you sir so uh, because I haven't been able to go to a lot of beer stores I've been sticking with what I can find easily at the few stores I go to. And I'm in luck that one of the stores I go to has Brother Thelonious from North Coast Brewing for a really, really good price. And it's always in good shape, too. It's a Belgian-style strong dark, 9.4%, about 27 IBUs. So it's got just enough bitterness there that it uh, doesn't get too cloying. One of the things I like about it is it has a really rich flavor without being thick and, and sweet. Uh, a lot of uh, beers that are rich kind of like get too thick to make them drinkable. This really follows the the Belgian uh, rule of digestibility. This is a very easy drinking beer at 9.4%, maybe almost too easy drinking. But, uh, you know, until I can get back to my old standby, the beer stein, and get in on some uh, real variety, uh, Brother Thelonious will remain in the lineup. Well, there are worse beers to have in the lineup. I, I, <laughs> I, mean, I do remember when that beer first came out, it did have that problem of being cloying. Yeah, right. it did. It, it did. And, you know, they've, I don't know exactly what they've done there. They're pretty, uh, 
tight-lipped about what goes into it, but uh, the body is just right, you know? it's there's, there's enough body there that you don't feel like you're drinking water, but not so much that you feel like you have to chew on it. Yeah, uh, but... Yeah, again, because I think when I, I remember when that beer came out, that was still relatively early in American craft brewing's attempt to do Belgian beers, and they didn't quite nail it. But now, now it's a, it is a really good beer, and actually, it's usually reasonably priced. Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I'm paying six ninety nine for a seven fifty, so that's that's pretty darn good. Yeah, that's not too bad. Well, I think it's time for us to get down to business, and I think. Unfortunately, the business that we have to lead in was the thing that ran through the homebrewing world and actually a lot of the professional brewing world, uh, God, uh, last weekend now. Uh, right. Unfortunately, uh, we got word that uh, good old Tasty McDole, Mike McDole, uh, that most of you probably know from the Brewing Network, who's been around homebrewing and been sharing his knowledge for years upon years upon years, uh, uh, passed away after about a year and a half of dealing with cancer. And so it's a very unfortunate thing, and I think the world has lost uh, somebody who was very happy to make all of our beer even better. Yeah, Mike was um, just a, a great, great guy, real open, friendly. Uh, I didn't know him super well, but we got to hang a few times. Uh, most notably, maybe about like five or six years ago, we were both invited down to uh, Arcata, California for the Homebrew Club's uh, big annual homebrew festival there. And, uh, it, you know, we got to hang out there. And basically what we did there for our part of it was we just kind of sat up on a stage and took questions from the audience. And it was very interesting because Mike and I have very different styles and philosophies of brewing uh you know i'm i'm fairly loose about things and mike was a, a real by the books kind of guy but in our conversation what kept coming up over and over again was that both of those methods and, and philosophies worked equally well for home brewing and you know it, it, there were he was not interested in proving himself right. He was interested in getting information out there to make everybody's lives more fun. Yeah, and well, and yeah, Mike. Mike was a good combination of you know taking it seriously, but also not taking it self seriously. And yeah, always, he always had that uh, that bit of that wry smile on his face of looking around at, like some of the nonsense going on at say HomebrewCon and and just kind of. Shaking his head a little bit at it. <laughs> yeah, really. And anyway, it's it, it's a big loss to the homebrewing community. It's a big loss to anyone who ever had a chance to meet him and talk to him. And, uh, you know, uh, go brew some Janet's Brown or something else. There you go. Or take away one of my favorite tips from him was the idea of brewing a strong lager and then keeping a keg of... Uh, carbonated water on hand to make a lighter lager on demand yeah you know what man that's exactly what i'm doing right at this moment Ta -da. all right well and so from that news also we need to go back and look at what we did in september you guys will remember that we talked a lot about yakima chief's uh hop and brew school and we've been there before we've done presentations there before we've gotten our feet dusty there before and our noses stuffed full of hop cones before but of course that's not possible this year and so Yakima Chief brought the whole thing online, and I have to say I thought it was it was amazingly well done. 
Yeah, it was it was amazingly well done. Whether we were uh, presenting or just watching the sessions, uh, I had a good time. I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, the session on survivables in hops, I think, is uh, going to be a, a classic that uh, a lot of people will refer back to over and over again, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, of course, uh, people who have listened to the Brew Files will recognize some of that same information. <laughs> Because uh, Scott and yeah. I were talking about that just before he was doing the presentation. But uh, yeah. I thought we also had a great time doing doing some things where they actually tried to make the experience a little more interactive and a little bit more like everybody was still in the same room. So the two panels that you and I did, well, one panel we were expecting to do, the other panel they asked us to do again because apparently we're weird. Uh, and it was we did the experimental hop series or sampling session. And I think out of that one, the one that surprised me was the fact, like, I remember they mailed us hops, right? And so I think what the cost was like 20 bucks. And it was yeah. like 15 bucks, something like that. Nominal cost, it was basically just enough to cover the shipping and maybe a little bit of the product. And they sent us a handful of varieties, including the, the new Talus hop, uh, that they, or the newly named Talus, I should say, and then walked us through how to do an evaluation. And what I remember you and I talking about before the session going uh, went. <clears throat> what I remember you and I talking about before the session went on was, wait, they sent us pellets. Why would they, why would they send us pellets for this? Because everything I've ever seen has always been like, you know, people rubbing and snuffling hop cones. And then while we were doing the the actual panel, they mentioned, oh, we prefer to do the sensory analysis on the pellets because it's a more consistent sensory uh, sensation. Which, yeah, which make, makes a lot of sense, and especially if you're going to be using pellets, that's what you want to evaluate, too. Yeah, so that was really cool. It also introduced us to the, that program, Sample Locks, which I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, I'd like to be able to use Sample Locks for my homebrew tastings, but uh, it's a little expensive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a cool program. For those of you who haven't used it, uh, basically uh, somebody sets it up, and uh, the whole group enters their uh, perceptions into it, and then it kind of correlates and tabulates things for you so you can see what the uh, group consensus is. Yeah, and we did that, and we did uh, also the beer uh, tasting, so it was uh, IPAs for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, that was interesting, IPA at 10 in the morning. But you know what? What I really thought was cool was that they had Zoom backgrounds available that you could use, and a couple of them were the Sports Center, which is... If you've ever been to uh, Selection or Harvest up in Yakima, you know that the Sports Center is the place to be uh, after hours. Yeah, well, and <laughs> entirely way too late after uh, spending all day with coolers of free beer. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, that's why I never stayed too late. Uh, at any rate, it was it was a really, really good thing. Uh, all of the sessions are still available online as videos. We will post a link to those along with this episode so that you guys can go check them out yourselves. It was all free, and it still is. So, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend that you check that out. And uh, I'm really hoping that next year is back to normal and we can be up there in Yakima again for harvest because it's one of those things I look forward to every year. Yeah, I would highly recommend people go to hopandbrewschool.com, go troll through the sessions. I think you'll find a lot of information in there, more than even just like the the panels that Denny and I were on and doing. Uh, Also, thanks to everybody who submitted questions because that uh, Q&A, I think, actually turned out really well. Um, Yeah. And so you can see all, all that stuff and learn a lot of new information. 
And yeah, I do agree with you. I think the survivable session is going to become something very important in craft brewing. And so speaking of things that are very important in craft brewing, Garrett Oliver just set up the Michael Jackson Foundation earlier this year, right? As we were somewhere, I think, around month two of COVID. Um, the foundation's intended to give scholarships for uh, people of color to be able to attend brewing school to then be able to become brewers, right? And so Jeff Allworth, you know, of the Birvana blog and Birvana podcast, he actually had Garrett on the podcast. And what I thought was really good was the interview was really good. But then Jeff also put together an edited transcript of the interview to make it more accessible than going just listening to the podcast again and again. And the biggest takeaway that, that I thought about is, I mean, Denny, I mean, I know you're, you've been around long enough to remember like when everybody referred to Garrett as uh, America's black brewer. Right. Yeah. And oh man, I hate to even think of that. I know, but it, but it was true. I mean, and then you know, we've slowly seen more black brewers join, and obviously here in LA, we have uh, explosion of Latinx brewers. But it's it's been interesting. Garrett actually in the interview breaks down some of the things that he, some of the reasons why he thinks that's that has been slow to change, and some of it comes down to just you know you have to have say six thousand dollars in order to be able to attend a course. Um, but also the decision that he made that, wait, you know, I'm the brewmaster here. I have the ability to control who can come in and out. And so why don't I start looking at my own role in this and how can I actually help as well? Being a guy who's in that position to be able to do the hiring and the training. So I really recommend, uh, people going and reading this. Uh, Garrett also name drops the uh, fresh fest up in uh, Pittsburgh and about seeing that as a positive sign of change. And again, I'm, I'm happy to see this being talked about because I like, I like hearing other people's opinions and getting other people's perspectives to impact things like my food and my beer and everything else. I guess there's really not much to say other than good on you, Garrett. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you understand, uh, what the problem is from a personal perspective. And, uh, it, it's great to see you taking it on. So it's it's good to see good to see that and uh, good to good read and a good uh, a good piece to also listen to and then the last one we're just going to touch on this real quickly so Stone Brewing's been in the news recently not always for the good stuff uh, a lot of trademark issues and uh, a lot of like talking to breweries and distilleries and getting after them because they're using stone and people thinking that's because the the Miller Keystone lawsuit that they're in the middle of and they're trying to show that they're being consistent in their enforcement. But then also they lost their CEO, like their CEO quit. And so they just hired a brand new CEO. And what it really is, and uh, I think it was uh, Kate Bruneau uh, in Good Beer Hunting put together a really good article and we'll link it that talks about the fact like Stone is kind of at this crossroads of like, you know, trying to find an identity. You know, how, how did they go from having been sort of the, you know, the people giving the middle finger to the establishment to now being the establishment? And what does that do for their relevance? Yeah, it's uh, it, there's a lot of stuff in there that uh, really kind of uh, points to a, the conclusion that maybe Stone has lost their way a bit. Uh, they've been trying to sell off uh, parts of the brewery for quite a while. Now they're looks like they're trying to sell off the whole thing. The woman who just came on as CEO comes from Lagunitas, where she was behind the sale of Lagunitas to Heineken. Mm -hmm. So you have to think that maybe Stone is looking in some sort of direction like that, too. 
Yeah, it, it's really curious though, because man, I know people have been uh, people have been thinking, you know, that hey, you know, Stone's a prime acquisition target. I mean, they're still a big brewery. Um, but the question is like, again, it's like how how relevant does Stone feel today? You know, particularly in this world where at least until COVID hit, you know, everything was all about you know the small little breweries with all these hazies, and you know, Stone's not really a hazy brewery. Well, I'm not even comparing it to small breweries. In the article, it makes the point of comparing it to breweries around the same size, and all of their packaged beer sales have gone up dramatically during the pandemic, yep. while Stones have gone down. Yeah, exactly. So it's you know it's kind of interesting. I wonder, like, part of it maybe like Stone moving into cans late. I think is also probably playing into there, but it's also just. Well, and and just they just don't know what they are or what they want to do anymore. I mean, you know, it's like they they've started all now printing labels on the bottles and cans upside down. Mm-hmm. When they asked Greg Hook about it, it was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what what's the point? Don't you think you should have uh, a little bit more focused marketing message? Yep, exactly. Well, and so and I think some of that's just the the. The problem that happens with Greg having been sort of the, uh, um, here are the air quotes when I say this, visionary uh, for the brewery and stepping away to do other things or being distracted by other things. And so, or, may, or maybe there's only so long that, that gimmicks will carry you. I mean, you know, that's possible also. It is. When I first got into Stone, it was because of Arrogant Bastard. And I saw that name and I read the bottle. You know, you probably won't like this. You're not sophisticated enough to like it. And that immediately drew me to the beer. But that kind of stuff is only going to work for so long. Well, and I do wonder how much losing Mitch has hurt the brewery. I, I don't know, man. Uh, you know, the, the, I don't know if the beers have changed much. I think it's just a, a question of uh, they just don't know how to get people to drink the beers. There you go. Well, going from drinking the beers to actually making the beers, I think we should go over to the brewery. Yeah, that's a really great idea. We've spent enough time here. Let's uh, finish these up and head on over. We'll meet all you guys in the brewery right after these messages. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. 
Thanks for sticking around. We are here in the brewery, and Drew's going to kick it off by talking about some new uh, yeasts from Lollaman that kind of fit along with their Philly Sour, and that it isn't your father's yeast. A little, a little correction there. It's not so much that these are new yeasts, right? It's So we all know that the low or no alcohol trend is continuing to grow, right? Part of what's fueling the whole hard seltzer thing is some of the perception that beer is unhealthy or that alcohol is unhealthy, which let's just take that as an actual fact. Um, and so there's been an increased interest in low and no alcohol. And, you know, starting to see things, and you guys will remember, we had Athletic on here, I think that was last year. And then last year when we were at HomebrewCon, remember when we could do HomebrewCon? We had Chris Saunders from Escarpment Labs talking about some of the alternative stuff he was doing to do low to no alcohol. And so this is a growing segment of the industry. I'm trying to remember, I think Anheuser-Busch said they expect something like 20% of their sales to be low no alcohol within the next five years, which, um, but Lollamond has actually started to get into the same game of trying to help people figure out how to do the low no alcohol game. So they're not out there yet with brand new cultures, but they started to give guidance and we'll include a link to what they, what they had published. And basically they said, uh, Lalamond is actively pursuing research into methods based around the second category. And the second category is finding things that don't uh, ferment as well, uh, or at least I should say don't ferment into alcohol. We recently published a best practice document for producing limited fermentability wort using the high temperature mashing technique. The resulting wort can then be fermented with a maltotriose negative yeast strain from within our collection, such as Lalbu Windsor and Lalbu London, should produce beers with a final alcohol content of 0.5 and 1.5%. So this is interesting. This is just their initial guidance, which is sort of doing the the short ferment cycle type, uh, type of things, but leaves some residual gravities. They go on to talk about the fact that they are going to be doing additional research and additional creation of microbiological materials that you can use to actually do a production of a low or no alcohol beer. And I, I'm wondering if it's going to be someone along the lines of uh, where Chris was trying to go with uh, escarpment just to get like things that will get rid of the sugars, but don't produce the alcohol. Yeah, I, I think so. That's what it sounds like. Uh, and before everybody gets too excited, remember this is not happening yet, but it's something that they're looking at and it's something that may be happening in the future at some point. So, uh, well, but at the same time, that, uh, that technique that they put in there, making a low gravity wart that is mashed super hot and then using one of their strains that can't do multi trios will get you a lower alcohol brew. So if it's something that you, that you're wanting to explore, you at least have that technique at your hands right now. Uh, but pay attention because I think obviously we're going to be seeing more of this given just the way the market's moving. Yeah, and let me just put a little caveat in there that uh, if you really are a person who needs a no-alcohol brew or uh, you're making one for somebody who really uh, can't take the alcohol, uh, don't go there yet, yeah, you know, no. because – None of these are going to be alcohol-free. There's been a lot of discussion of this on, on Facebook recently. People are talking about heating the beer to 180 and stuff. You're not going to be removing all the alcohol by that method anyway, and the beer will likely end up tasting like something you don't want to drink. So take this as uh, hope for the future, and don't go running out there uh, thinking you're going to make alcohol-free beer right now. Yeah, if it was that easy, people would have... Uh already done it a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right 
Okay, so now you're going to tell us a little bit more about that uh, beer from El Segundo that you were drinking in the pub. Yeah, so this is this is brand new. So, so um, El Segundo, like I said in the pub, is I would argue LA's best um, IPA oriented brewery, or I should say hop oriented, uh, because uh, so much of the stuff that they do is hop oriented. And y'all remember the Brute IPA trend that came and went in like the space of about six months? Um, the Seiko is a Brute IPA. They don't call it a Brute IPA anymore, but that's why it's called Seiko, Spanish for dry. And they were I, I got to talking with the brewers about it because what was really interesting about it was with the combination of hops that they had in there. And I'm trying to remember it was like Citra and Centennial and... There was one other one in there. It was one of the fruity ones, but not mosaic. And it was it was a very dry beer, but it not not a you know not like to the point where you felt like you were parched drinking it. But it was a dry beer, full of all these rich hop oils that they had in there, like a six point seven percent ABV, so not even uh, not a light beer, um, but full of all this hop oil. And I mean, like the immediate sensation that you got when you stuck your nose into it was like you were having a piece of pineapple in the middle of a pine forest. Wow. And, That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. And, and then you drink it and it just, it, it went down so smoothly. And so like still with a little bit of that fruit sweetness, uh, because, but just enough bitterness to kind of cut it back. All the hops were all Whirlpool edition hops. Nothing went into the kettle, uh, before the beer hit 185 degrees. So no bittering charge, no nothing. And it's actually one of the few times I think I've ever had a beer with no boil hops that actually felt like it had enough bitterness in the back end to not feel flabby. So if you remember the whole thing about Brute IPA, the idea was let's use an enzyme. So like I think what White Lab sells it as ultra firm, right? And I think it's a, a alpha galactidase or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Um the or amyloid lactase, um, but they use that in the ferment, fermenter to actually chop up all the longer chain sugars and allow the yeast to to go do their business and turn that into alcohol and also get rid of any of the sort of back end carbs, right? Well, the way people had been doing brewed IPA because brewers didn't want to mess up their yeast pitches was to put it into the secondary, right? And then the yeast that was left over in there would chew up any of the sugars that were generated, but as we know, or at least you should know, if you had any of these brood IPAs, a fair number of them had diastole problems because the yeast didn't have enough uh, vitality left to go clean up, clean up after themselves after they'd done all the fermentation. Because diastole will always be produced in a fermentation that produces alcohol. Um, then you had other people like Jeremy Robb, who we had on the show, who started using those enzymes like they're actually traditionally meant to be used, which was in the mash. Um, so what... El Segundo did that I thought was interesting is they use the enzyme in primary and they combine it with another com uh, another enzyme which is effectively a diastole controller um, and it's like a an acetolactate deoxyribose or decarbolase um, and they use that to to stop the formation of the diastole or at least clean up the diastole and so they do it almost like uh, really kind of like how sake is made, right? You know, with sake, you know, you, you'll steam the rice and you have that in a fermenter with the koji, and the koji is attacking the starch in the rice and producing sugar. And as the sugar is being produced, the yeast is waking up and eating the sugar and turning it into alcohol. So in a lot of ways, they're kind of doing 
something very similar to a sake ass method to make this beer. And I will tell you, this is this is the best brutish IPA thing I've ever had. And looking at their technique, given that I don't have to worry about trying to harvest yeast for another yeast pitch, this sounds interesting to me. I I, I want to give this a try and see if this does any better. Yeah, it's really interesting, man. Uh, a great way to go about it. Yeah, and I think I think also keto it is also just doing those whirlpool hops. Uh, but again, I was really surprised because I've I don't think I've ever really had a whirlpool hopped beer that I didn't feel like it needed a little something in the back end, and this this didn't need it. So I was really really impressed by this. Also, it helps that wow. I was drinking it when it was one day old. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Before anything had had a chance to fade. Well, and so that's my brewing experience and like what I'm thinking about making right now, particularly now that L.A. is probably finally about to cool down and my backyard is no longer on fire. But, Denny, you've actually had a chance to play with the brand new G70, right? Yeah, uh, the the new grandfather, well, I don't know how new it is. It's the grandfather G70. It's a scaled-up, redesigned version of the grandfather. Uh, 70 stands for 70 liters. You can do uh, up to 15 gallons of beer at a time in it, although I have to admit that uh, I've been keeping it down around 12 because I just can't deal with more beer than that at a time. But uh, it's really, really a killer unit. Uh, they've made some uh, design changes from the grandfather, and uh, I put up a little tour of it that's uh, on our website that you can go take a look at. But basically, it has a, a much larger uh, hop filter screen in the bottom. It has a center outlet, a big, beefy pump. It comes to a boil quickly, especially considering the much larger volume in it. It really doesn't take any longer to brew a 12-gallon batch on the G70 than it takes uh, to brew a 5-gallon batch on the G30, which is what the regular grandfather is. Well, and, uh, it, and specifically, ahead. that's because, I mean, this is all, what, 220? Yeah, it's 220, but my, my G30 is 220 also. Uh, you know, so it's a, that's a, a, a negligible comparison in, in that regard. Uh, I think that obviously being a larger unit, there's more room to put in a beefier heating element mm-hmm. in it. Uh, but I, you know, I, I am just really, really digging it. Uh, downsides, if you can call them that, is that Produces a lot of beer at a time. <laughs> so if you're, uh, you know, if you need that, I mean, it'd be a great thing if you're running a brewery and you were looking for a half barrel pilot system. It'd be great for that. If you don't get a chance to brew very often, so you need to brew a bigger batch for it, you know, it's a great thing for that. And the other downside is that uh, when you brew all that beer at a time, that's a lot of grain and it gets heavy lifting the basket out of it to sparge. Uh, it would take two people to lift it or a, a little winch like I've been using to lift mine. Uh, I have to uh, say that I never thought that I would be the guy who uh, used a winch to brew with, but sure enough, I am. Well, hey, you know, human beings have brains and the ability to multiply force, so why not use it? Uh, now, let me ask, yeah. you said you were doing like 10, 12 gallons at a time, and obviously a lot of beer. Can you go down to five or five-ish? Uh, eight is as low as you can go, and you need the what they call the micro pipe work for that uh, so that it doesn't stick up as far. 
So, you know, eight gallons is the smallest batch you can make on it. And of course, of course, you know, it's going to be limited somewhat by, you know, how much grain you can actually fit in for your maximum batch size and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, man, uh, I think that with the micro pipe work, this could be your do all brewing system because uh, eight gallon batch isn't that much harder to ferment than say the six gallon batches I was already doing. Uh, and you know, I, right now I've got like, you know, 25 gallons of IPA on deck because we go through a lot of IPA in, around here and being able to double batch it uh, a couple times was, was great uh, to uh, get, get the uh, on deck line filled up. So, you know, that's fine. Uh, I'm, my next brew is going to be uh, my no tie brown ale. And I always end up making two five gallon batches of that back to back because we like it so well this time of year. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be great to be able to do the, the double batch in one brew. Uh, it, you know, it, it uh, is really easy to clean. Uh, they've added a, a valve down below the, uh, I guess what you would call the false bottom, uh, that's connected to the pump. So it's really, really easy to drain it and uh, clean it. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else I like about it. Pretty much just everything. The, uh, the controller uh, these days is, is color, which is cute. Uh, not necessary, but it doesn't hurt. And it's also a Wi-Fi controller as opposed to the Bluetooth controller that the G30 uses. So it's a lot easier to run it and check in on it from a remote location, which is pretty handy. So start a brew day, go over to Alesong, control everything while you're at Alesong. Well, you know, you're pretty much like programming in any steps you want to do or anything. But yeah, you could you could at least check and see how things are going. Uh, you know, uh, you could run it manually, I guess, if you wanted to. But uh, it's more for for just transferring a recipe into it uh, mm-hmm. that will then brew automatically, and then checking in on it occasionally to see uh, how things are going. Well, I mean, like I've used the I've used the Bluetooth controller in the past to like. Like sit here in my office and double check and make sure where we're at in the in the steps and you know maybe t- change things around just a little bit. But yeah, I, I, I think it would be better with Wi-Fi. Yeah, my my brewery is far enough away from my house that uh, you know Bluetooth just will not cut it for that kind of thing. So you know it, it it's really nice. It, it it's a well integrated unit. It works fantastically well. Um, as I say in the little video that I made. Uh, the pump has enough oomph that I can pump into my uh, fermenters, which are maybe like, oh, geez, at least 10 or 12 feet away, and the top of them is like six feet up in the air. So uh, it's, a, it's a nice, healthy pump also. Good. Well, And you remember how much it retails for? Uh, as I recall, it's like like 1998 U.S. something like that. Uh, so you know, it's it's not really all that expensive if you're looking for a big system. Right. I was going to say you're already if you're already looking at something that can do what I mean. You said 70 liters, and that's like 18 gallons in theory. Yeah. Well, well, you know, that's that's the whole boil right. volume. You, you you'll end up with like around a 15 gallon batch, so half a barrel. Right. So I mean, a half barrel professional system with controllers. Yeah, about 2k is not out of bounds. 
And I think no, it's not. And again, especially if you're a brewery looking for a pilot system or something, that's a very reasonable price. Yeah. Well, plus, I mean, I've seen people come into this hobby and drop like 5K on something and then walk away from it later. So apparently there are some people out there from whom that's okay to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, all I know is that uh, I'm going to be sorry when I have to send it back. There you go. All right. Well, speaking of beer tasting and beer drinking and all that sort of fun stuff, I think we should go have some beer again. Yeah, let's do that. Let's head over to the lounge and have a beer with Jeff and Susan Rankert. We'll be right back. From the Malt Innovation Center, Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye, perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted biscuit-forward flavors and classic rye spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet. Why East invites you to the new season with our Hearth Private Collection release, featuring sophisticated, nuanced options for winter beers that connect you to the warmth of the holidays. 2000 Boudvar Lager produces a rich malt profile and subtle fruit undertones and finishes crisp and dry. 1581 Belgian Stout is ideal for any Belgian specialty ale. This strain creates moderate esters without significant phenolics or spiciness. And 3864 Canadian Belgian Ale complements the collection with banana and fruit esters, mild phenolics, and a hint of acidity. With their wide accommodation of temperature tolerance, brewing styles, and preferences, you can try these Y-East Originals now through the end of December. Find out more at yeastlab.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Well, we're in the place with the comfy chairs. And the comfy chairs means it's time for us to lounge. Denny, how are we lounging today? We are lounging with a delicious Pilsner from uh, Jeff and Susan Rankert. Uh, you guys may remember them from uh, oh, about a year ago on the way back from Hop and Brew School, uh, which we had all gone to. We stopped in Hood River and talked to Brian Perky from Lawland about uh, some of the new developments in the East World and what they were doing. And we've been doing uh, ingredient exchanges with Jeff and Susan. They sent us some of those amazing Michigan Chinook hops that uh, have that real pineapple character to it. And to say thank you, we sent them some mecha-grade malt. Uh, Of course, we put in a little uh, condition for that, that they had to send us some of the beer that they did. And uh, this is the first one that they've sent us. It's a... uh, Pilsner that they made. Uh, they lived in Germany for quite a while, so they're a, a big fan of German beers. And we sat down with a glass of beer and got them on the phone and talked about it. So uh, let's take a listen to that. 
Hey, everybody, we are back, and we are over here in the lounge, and we have some guests today in the lounge. Jeff and Susan Rankard, our good friends, are joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to be on, Denny. <laughs> you know, at, at our age, it's good to be anywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Get now. Yeah. So exactly. The the genesis for all this, uh, I'll try and make a long story short, and you guys know that I can't really do that. I was going to uh, say, that's never happened. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. Jeff and Susan had been sending us these amazing Chinook hops from Michigan. Uh, we've talked about them a lot. Uh, they're a lot different than the Pacific Northwest Chinooks we usually get. So we decided that we would reciprocate by sending them some mecha-grade malt, except that we made them send us some of the beer that they brewed with the malt. And so today we're going to be tasting the first one of these, and uh, why don't you guys describe this beer a bit? Okay. I'm a big fan of uh, the Schoenrammer beers in Germany. Uh, we've been to the brewery, actually, spent, I think, three nights close by. Uh, and that's the brewery that the head brewers, a guy named Eric Toft from Wyoming, who studied in uh, at Feinstephaner, uh, got a degree and has been there for many, many years, married to a German lady, and he uh, makes some outstanding beers. And I ran across the recipe in craft beer and brewing and said, I can make that. So I got the hops I didn't have and proceeded to make it, and I used the Mecca Grade Pelton Tills. Uh, reading a couple things I've read from him before, years ago he used Byerman Barca, but he's now switched to a uh, malt from a local maltster to him. And Schoenrammer's clear over by the Austrian border. They're not far from the Salzburg airport. Uh, the planes for taking off come over pretty low. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> You know, in an article that was in Craft Beer and Brewing said uh, the malt's a little under-modified, so they can actually do decoctions. Right. So there you go. <laughs> well, you all know, I can say is, are, first, you're, you're kind of breaking my image of, like, a bucolic German countryside with the airplanes. They have airplanes, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it is. Well, you know what? And, and I started looking at this recipe, and it was like, boy, I could brew this until I got to the decoction part. And it's like, oh, yeah. my goodness. I did not decoct. I did the step mash. Oh, right. Oh, cool. That's good to know, man, uh, because that means I don't have to either. And uh, the, the grain father makes it so easy to do the step mash that I took a look at the schedule here. And we'll we'll throw this uh, recipe up on, on the website, or at least a link to it, so people can see it. But my first thought when I took a look at it was I saw, you know, Spalter Select, Tradition, Hallitower, Tetnanger. I mean, these are some of my favorite hops in this beer. Yeah, there's a longer article that went with this recipe uh, where uh, the author interviewed Eric Toff. And they actually, the middle fruit they get are Tetnanger middle fruit. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, good luck finding those in the home. Yeah, I was going to say, man, I'm never even... I didn't realize that they grew middle fruit in Tetnang. And supposedly it's got the special qualities because of hot terroir. So there you go. I, I just opened ours and I'm looking at it. It's clean. It's carbonated. By clean, I mean very clear. Uh, I, I guess I better open mine if it's time to start drinking. 
Oh, sure. Why not? Well, and I did want to say, it, the recipe itself, I mean, outside that hop schedule is, like, simplicity. Because it's just nine pounds of Pilsner malt for the base recipe. Yeah. I'm assuming you guys went and used the Pelton? Yes, of course. Yes, this is mecha grade Pelton, one malt, and a lot of hops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I was chewing on the malt, and I just really just... The malt straight up, uh, I could eat that like popcorn. It's really different, isn't it? That that full yeah. pint as a base malt uh, really, really brings in different qualities than you get out of a lot of other uh, malts. Yeah, that's a great malt. Yeah. I noticed that this article, too, is by Joe Stang, and I actually uh, got to meet him when I was over there a year or so ago at the Zythos Fest. Uh, that was- oh, nice. We met him uh, around... I think he was at NHC in Grand Rapids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's like uh, there was a a guy who listened to the podcast who uh, had been in touch with me and said, if you're coming over for the Zythos Fest, I'm going there. So, you know, I was sitting at a table with him looking through the, oh, geez, what are those books that that Joe writes, you know, the, the beer guides to different countries? Oh, the, yeah. the good beer guide to Belgium. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I was sitting there looking through my copy of that, and uh, then suddenly it's like, oh, here's my friend Joe Stang. It's like, wow, this is pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, Joe also has the unfortunate distinction of having to edit my column for Craft Brewer and Burnt. Oh no, really? Oh, jeez, yeah. too bad. We know how difficult that can be. Okay, well, so now let's let's talk about the beer because we mentioned that the grain bill is very simple because it's just straight up Pilsner malt, or in this case, straight up Pelton malt. Uh, and I'm really getting that kind of fresh doughiness mm-hmm. that I often yeah, really like think about with Pelton. Yep. Um, what'd you guys do? Uh, I didn't see any water treatments uh, in the in the recipe itself. What'd you guys do for your water? It was Iro water because the water here is absolutely terrible. I'm today swearing a few times because I'm working on some faucets that are leaking and they're all <laughs> frozen up with scale. I'm trying to get them apart. The, uh, so it was RO water and I added basically to get the, uh, see the chloride was up around 60 and the sulfate was about 90. Nah, a little less than 90. Right. So really kind of just about one to one. Um, more like one and a half to one. Yeah, it's more sulfate in as far as grams go than uh, calcium chloride too, but, um, CaCl2. Then it's uh, what Kai Troister used for his Pilsner with RO. Ah. So if, if people know Kai's uh, website, they can go and look at the water recipes on that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I usually use uh, like the Brune water, like, uh, oh, like yellow dry or yellow balance for my German pills, but I always end up with more sulfite than, or more sulfate than, uh, than chloride, which. Yeah. It kind of freaks people out because they think, you know, you hear so many people going, well, with with Pilsner, you need a lot of chloride. They're thinking more in terms of a, a, a Bohemian Pils and not necessarily a German Pils. For German Pils, you got to have that little bit of hop slap in there, I think. That's why a lot of the German beers, especially when you get the ones from up north that are the industrial Fernsdale beers, meaning PV beers, because they advertise, are... Um, Dry, bone dry. Really? Uh, yeah. So yeah, things like Yaver and um, Glensberger. Glensberger, 
shoot. Uh, Even Bitburger said what? Berliner uh, pills and Bitburger to a little bit. Yeah, Kernick, which is one of my favorites up there. But yeah, that was, when we lived in Germany, we had a steady diet of those. So I do want some of that dryness. Yeah, right. And I was I was just about to say to people out there that if you can't tell, Jeff and Susan uh, lived in Germany for a while and uh, have a deep understanding and appreciation of German beers. So uh, when I'm looking for comments from home brewers, uh, I turn to them a lot. Well, and so just real quick, I know the recipe calls for decoction, and you'd mentioned uh, no decoction. You guys just step mash this, like yeah, I went. I actually went in at about one fifty. Ended up 151. I remember, uh, you know, Greg Doss had looked at attenuation and 153 was the best rim, so I missed by a little bit. And then I ramped it up, did a short rest at 158 and then went to 163 for a little bit to get some foam. Supposedly that's a really good temperature for foam generation to get those proteins and then mash out at 170. So you, uh, you didn't follow the mash schedule that's in the recipe then? No. No. Yeah, and for re- for listeners, I mean, because the the schedule that's in the recipe uh, uh, online is a very traditional sort of crazy decoction schedule, where it's one eighteen to one twenty two uh, to one forty to one forty nine, etc. <laughs> yeah, out. right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. Then you then you do a decoction and, to get up to mash out. So uh, I'm glad read, I'm glad to know that. You read that article. He, He's using that under modified malt. Where this stuff's modified, I looked up the diastatic diastatic power, and it was 200 lint. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, this stuff's going to convert just when you look at it. Yeah. So yeah. So why go through all of uh, the stuff for the decoction unless for some reason you find that enjoyable? Well, and especially because they have you start the mash schedule at such a low temperature. And this is another reminder for people listening out there. Your mash schedule really needs to depend more on the malt you're using than the recipe you're using. If you tried to follow this mash schedule with a highly modified malt like the Pelton, mashing in at 118 and raising to 122, you're going to end up with a thin beer that will never have any chance of having head on it. And again, like I said, I think the Peloton comes through loud and clear in here. I don't think you could get away doing like a a RAR two row or a Great Western, you know, pale or or even the Great Western pills and make a make a beer that has this much body to it from just that one malt. Right. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say too. It's like when you only have one malt in a beer, you better make sure it's a damn good malt. Right, and I do get that, you know doughy, bready sensation. It's not overpowering, but it's there. And then there's sometimes they get a little bit of grassiness out of it, which a lot of the German yeah. uh, pills and malts have too. Yep. Or more like hay. Yeah, hay makes it sound a lot more pleasant than grassy. <laughs> <laughs> well, because yeah. the other thing I'm also getting that's uh, that's interesting is I'm getting at the back end, like after, the, as, as the beer sorts have finished out, I got that mineral dryness, I've got the, um, I got the hop characters kind of fading out. I get actually like a little breath of honey in the in the finish, you know. And I, I get that out of a lot of the mecha grade malts. Uh, I, I made a, a triple with them recently, and I was noting the same kind of quality uh, with that made with Pelton. There you go. Kind of now, it, we do need to talk about this hop schedule though, um, because this hop schedule is bananas. 
it, 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 it feels like somebody just took an IPA schedule and sort of shifted it around, maybe lowered the amounts a little bit. Because we're looking at 10 different additions at five different times in the recipe. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because every edition has two different types of hops in it, too. So, you know, and I'm I'm a big fan of that. Uh, I, I really like a little bit of hop complexity uh, as opposed to just using one all the way through. Yeah, although I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could just from closing my eyes, I don't know if I'd be able to say, oh, yeah, that's that's Spalt Select or that's traditional or that's Milfru. Well, I might be able to get the Milfru and a little bit of the Tetanang, but I mean, it, it's sort of interesting to me because what I get in this is just a it just kind of a well-rounded sort of spicy German hop character, right? But nothing that jumps up at me and says, "Hi, I'm this hop." Yeah, I I agree with you there. The aroma is the one thing I'm a little disappointed in because I I did have this beer at Schönram and. It does have some pretty good hop aroma. So next time I'll probably put a little bit more at the late edition in the boil. And one other thing for German beer, this is Whirlpool hops, which is unusual. That's what I was going to ask you about, man. Uh, I'm not familiar with too many German beer recipes that use Whirlpool hops. Do you think that's something they really do? Or do you think that that was uh, Joe's interpretation of it? Oh no, I, they've got a, remember, they've got, uh, uh, Eric Toth, who is Toth, who is, uh, American, and uh, it's pretty sure. funny, uh, talking with people like Stan Aronimus and John Mallet, who's the production, uh, vice president at Bell's, and there's a few other people that go, oh yeah, I've been to Eric's story. Uh, everybody knows him that's been around for a while. So, so you think it's that American influence that makes the whirlpool hops happen? Huh? I, I think he's decided to do that to make it pop a little bit more. And they have won uh, numerous awards in Europe for this beer, uh, for the European uh, Beer Star Awards, and they've done pretty well at GA or I should say World Beer Cup too. So, right. You know, and I'm, I was just looking at the specs here, and I see that this beer comes in at 42 IBUs, which is quite respectable. I mean, you think about Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which is uh, 38, according to what I looked up yesterday. So this is this beer is right up there, uh, even a bit more than an American Pale Ale, which is, I'm sure, will shock a lot of people. There are uh, beers like Yeager, which... The brewery claims they're still hopping to 40 IBUs, and Yaver's a little bit more austere on the malt. It's uh, clean, dry, and bitter. Nice, nice beer to drink, though. It is. We're drinking out of Yaver glasses right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm drinking out of my uh, Brewing America muffin top. Oh, okay. And so am I. How about that? Ta-da! Ta-da! So, so I mean, is there anything you would do different if you were to brew this again? I would bump up the late hops a little bit to get, uh, especially the Whirlpool, to get a little bit more hop aroma. There's hop aroma, but not as I remember. And, of course, my memory on that is, what, three years old? Right. Mm-hmm. And um, we had been at the brewery several times. We finally found out they did tours, and I asked if we could, do one in the uh, Chilnerin, 
said the next day, oh, yeah, come back at such and such a time. There's a bus that came in late from Munich, and we tagged along and behind it. Uh, the tour was all in German, but we did tour. Uh, the reason I'm going through this, they had this wall that was a chalkboard with all the beers in the different tanks. In the upper right, there was a pale ale and something else American. And in the lower left, was a Russian Imperial Stout. So <laughs> most, most of these German breweries these days will have a brand that's typically just bottled, and it might be labeled as Manufaktor, which is how they label their craft beers. Interesting. Wow. And and uh, that, that, that seems interesting to me because I know, like, we were talking – I don't know. God, it seems like a year ago, or actually probably more now, about like Stone failing in Berlin, and you know they're blaming it on oh, you know, the German people weren't ready for what we we're doing. But it sounds like no, that's not quite the case. At least with the, the smaller breweries, uh, that's true, Drew. They have these limited lines of craft beers, uh, yeah, which are not called it beers. Yeah, and they're um, in bottles. They show up in bottle shops. The other thing you have to remember in Germany, you can get, in some places, uh, a half liter of a well-made lager for two euros. Wow. Which, yeah. And, and that's gone up. Uh, yeah, but that would be about five bucks. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I still no, miss the two, days. Two euros is more like. Uh, just under three bucks. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still miss the days when uh, when Belgium was still on the Belgian franc, and you could go get like a an incredible glass of something Trappist for like a buck ten. Yeah, yeah. But I think that was part of it with uh, Stone was the fact that they were operating like they do uh, in the U.S. and the Germans weren't ready to uh, pay those kind of prices. Well, right. I think we're a big part of it, you know. Yeah, even in Bamberg, prices have gone up. If you go to Schlenkerla, a half liter of the Meritzen is three euros. Oh, geez, man. What Highway robbery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I see that the recipe here calls for uh, 3470. I assume that's what you used. Uh, yeah. were, were you happy with that in it? Have you considered well, maybe using honest, a different yeah, use? Yeah, I used diamond. I used diamond on this oh, one. Oh, sure. Both are the same thing. Yep. And I find 3470 gives you that dryness in the finish also. Uh, I'd had half of this batch, 10-gallon batch. Five gallons was done with S189. Oh, really? It had, yeah, it was not quite as dry, and it had a little, little more mouthfeel. Right. That's typical of S189. Yeah. Well, and it, it is funny because that 3470 strain, that... Uh, it is a global workhorse. I mean, I think actually, if I remember correctly, Imperial Yeast Company's name for it is Global. And I've been doing these happy hours with all these LA area craft breweries recently. And I'm fairly certain uh, almost all of them, every time they have a lager of some variety, it's a 3470 uh, strain. So it, that, that strain is everywhere and people use it for a reason. Yeah. Now, it would, what'd you guys do for the fermentation profile? I mean, was this. It, was this like super traditional lagered with like a long-term lager schedule or? Yeah, it was. I, uh, like I said, split it. It was fermented, uh, pitch cold about 46 degrees, 45 degrees. Let it come up to 50. Didn't go over 50. 
uh, for quite a while. Then finally, I took it up to maybe 56 for, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a little rest and finish up. Then slowly took it down, uh, got it down to 40 and held it at 40 for about a week. Uh, and then slowly went down from there and finally the logger, uh, was at, uh, 30F for, about three weeks. So you didn't go for these six to seven week lagering like the recipe says, huh? No, I wanted to drink the beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it just, I can, I can so relate to that. Getting cold. Yeah, it was, it was there. And then, you know, this beer was in the serving fridge behind the S189 for quite a while. So it's been cold for a long time. Cool. That, that always helps. I find if you kind of like stick one in the back and forget about it for a while. Yeah, yeah. I had to go. I had to go diving through the chest freezer to figure out where I'd stash this before we did this tasting. <laughs> it was like I pulled. I, I think I pulled about half the chest freezer out before I found it. I was like, "Oh, there it is." So, have you guys tried any of the other Mecca grade malts that we sent you yet? I have brewed a beer with the Lamanta Pale Ale, and I was going to keg it today, but I got lazy. Did some <laughs> other thing, uh, and that was with. Uh, the good old Michigan Chinook and Kvike yeast. All right. And that's one we've done several times. So there's that one. And then I plan to do another beer with that malt. Uh, I've got a bunch of uh, Zappa hops. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. I, I have not used those yet. And I I'm really, intrigued. I, I need to get my hands on some because the reason I've spent 55 years in the music business is because of Frank Zappa. So I guess I need to get some of those hops. I knew there was a reason why people should be upset with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sierra Nevada did uh, a little podcast, and they talked about using those hops in one of their beers. And uh, they had, well, which one, Amit Sapa was on? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it wasn't Dweezil. It wasn't Dweezil. But, yeah, yeah, and, um, he, yeah. and so they're all talking about the hops, and they say, yeah, there's something there. <laughs> I do like uh, Sabro hops. And uh, these are different coming up, so we'll see how they turn out. Right, I was going to say the Zappas are another Neo-Mexicanus. Yeah, yeah. And then you sent us the bag of uh, of the Munich. Right. Which, boy, I forget what they call it. Metolius. Metolius, yeah. I, I've seen where the Metolius River comes out of the ground. Uh so there's that, and then the rye off the, that'll be the last one I'll do, a, a rip on a rye IPA. Right. Yeah, man, their rye malt, I mean, I've gone through a lot of different rye malts over the years, and the the one from Mecca Grade uh, just has more flavor to it than anything else I've used. And I really, I'm a big fan of the Metolius, too. It's a, a really rich malt without being too over-the-top and sweet. So I'll, I'll be looking forward to your comments about that. Beer went really well with that. And once again, the diastatic power 170, that's right up there with modern six row. Yeah. I'm just scratching my head going, how do they do that? Yeah, breeding, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's breeding. And Seth has a very unique malting machine, too. Oh. Yeah, okay. It's uh, it's custom built. It's the only one in the world. He took what he learned uh, from malting at home when he was a home brewer and uh, had this machine built for him on a very large scale. So it, it's not like anything else that I've ever seen. Like they call it mechanical floor malting because uh, you know it's kind of like floor malting, but it's mechanically agitated. 
Yeah, I've, I've been through that area. I just, you know, had friends that lived in Bend for a while. We, you know, go up and down the gorge and then take a right, you know, head down to Bend and back through and you go through. You know, you go up and down the Mecca grade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly where the name came from. Maybe one, maybe one of these days we'll all be able to travel again. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I miss those days. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Hey, Drew, something <laughs> popped in my head. You're talking about your images of Germany being a little, you know, bucolic and all that. Well, <laughs> we were staying in these little villages that, boy, there was not much going on except for the brewery and some guest houses and uh, mm-hmm. um, a couple of outlets for the beer. But one thing that was always evident was the odor of the cows. <laughs> there were cows <laughs> everywhere. Which, being through, yeah, having gone through most of Germany, that's not true. But this was the area where they make a lot of cheese, too. Oh, and, and by the way, I, I know that when I say something like that, I'm the, I mean, obviously Germany is a very industrialized country and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I'm, I, I have the sound of music and all that playing in my head. What do you, what do you want from me? Um, <laughs> it's particularly okay. when you're talking about a small, a small brewery, right? I, but of course I live here in LA. Our small breweries are in uh, warehouses in the middle of industrial parks. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that we'll be getting some email about that comment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. One thing I, I need to say too, this one's uh, kind of a, uh, mid-sized regional in, in Germany. It's not huge, but it's a pretty good-sized brewery. It is in a rural area, and the other thing that came to mind is you look south and you see the Alps. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, well, I love doing here, that. Real, real quick, so just to give people an idea, like, can you compare Can you compare the size of this brewery to, like, the size of a, an American craft brewery that, we, that people might think about? I mean, I'm assuming not as big as Bell's or... I'm trying to do the hectoliter to barrels. They're probably around eighty thousand to a hundred thousand barrels a year. Oh, that's okay. a that's yeah, decent so that's size, yeah. Yeah. Where 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 Bell's is fair, you know, before the pandemic was right about a half million. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I was gonna say uh breweries around here other than Ninkasi are probably like in the uh, the ten to twenty K area, so uh, you know, that's that's a lot bigger than most of the ones we have around here. Well, yeah, but I think that's also one of those regional impact things, right? I was talking to one of our local breweries here last night, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we made uh, 8,000 barrels last year. And they're one of the oldest breweries in L.A. County and, and have, like, sort of a broad-ranging footprint here. And it was like, wow, wait, really, only 8,000? And mentioned Schlankerla before. I think they, you know, make around 20,000 hectoliters a year, which is what? Around sixteen, seventeen thousand barrels. Right. But we all know that's them. a lot of that's a lot of ham sandwiches, beers. Boy, you know, I keep sipping away on this beer as we're talking here, and it is truly, truly delicious. And I'm really liking the way it, it kind of opens up as it sits there. Yeah, this one, you know, both kegs disappeared, and yeah, now we're without Pilsner, and I've been told <laughs> I need to brew another Pilsner. Yeah, even though it's well, not I mean, really. Not really Pilsner brewing weather. You know, the groundwater is still a little warm, but I guess it's going to make bags of ice. <laughs> oh, Susan. Right. Let's, let's, let's compare groundwater to Yeah, shall really. We? You don't want to talk <laughs> yeah, I, about I know. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get no sympathy. Every, every time I 
talk to Drew about how my groundwater is a consistent 55 degrees, I think that uh, he's going to throw something at me. Yeah, uh, last week I measured mine and it was like 76. So, yay. Well, not, I'll, I'll, I just want to throw in my uh, my concurrence with, well, both the fact that your kegs disappeared and as Denise saying, as the beer goes on, uh, it drinks really wonderfully. I, I, I looked down and I realized my glass was empty without thinking about it. <laughs> That's yeah, what happens. Just about empty. Yeah, that's the sign of a good pilsner, man. You know, it just uh, disappears. Yeah, one other thing too is I have an old uh, system with half barrels, et cetera, et cetera, and but I try and keep oxygen out as much as possible, and do treat the stripe water, and you know, on the cold side, I'm really doing cold. I mean, close transfers, and you know, the bottle I made sure to get it as much out with uh, the beer gun as I could. And yeah, I'm really trying to do things as best I can. And this has held up pretty well. I made this boy back, I think April time frame. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I know we've had it for a while and just uh, waiting for schedules to coalesce so we could uh, talk to you guys about it, but it has really, really held up nicely. Yeah. I think, you know, for these delicate beers, that's, that's a must do. And for some beers, I don't, you know, I'm not as OCD about them, like a British yeah. bitter that's going to turn around real quick. Yeah, right. I mean, if you're making a barley wine, then a bit of oxidation is not necessarily a bad thing, you know? Or I've been through British breweries where they're, I mean, Queen Victoria technology just about. <laughs> Well, I know you guys have a reservation at a brewery there, uh, so uh, we'll let you get ready to head off for that. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for brewing this beer and sending us some. And don't, don't stop now. Yeah, we'll do some more. I mean, and I forgot to say with the Munich malt, uh, what am I going to do with that? A dunkel. Oh, nice. My favorite. My oh man, that is one of my absolute favorite styles. So I'll be looking forward to trying that, and uh, especially seeing your recipe for that. Do you have a standard dunkel recipe that you use? That I've been trying to dial it in. The last one I did, boy, it was. If you go to Germany and you look for it, a lot of times you get a grapey flavor, and people say that comes from the malt, mm-hmm. and you know it's a. There's a precursor in the malt, and then the yeast turned it in, and it's a uh, tastes like like Welch's grape juice. And <laughs> this one, this one had that spade, so I I didn't end up drinking all of it. My last one, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try again. Yeah, uh, really, man. I I man managed to make a dunkel once that reminded me a whole lot of Iinger and. When next time I got ready to brew one, I went back and tried to find it in my notes. And I have so many recipes for them in there, and I didn't mark down which one it was that I really liked. So it's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Starting, Wait. starting from scratch again. Wait, people, I want everybody to know, Denny's vaunted journals failed him. Oh, yeah, that's true. Actually, it was my vaunted memory that failed me. <laughs> or my unvaunted memory i don't know what which one that is at any rate guys thank you once again for joining us here today and we're going to be looking well good i'm yeah. i'm glad it has been because we're going to make you do it again one of these oh, I know. and you know i've been looking at these last two bottles in the fridge and going 
I wonder how they held up. I think they held up fine. Oh, yeah, man. I, I totally enjoyed this. I got half of this bottle left and another one in the fridge, and uh, I know what I'm going to be doing this afternoon. How do you have a half a bottle okay. left? <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for the malt. Oh, it was it was our pleasure, you know. Uh, it it kind of like seemed only fitting after you've been sending us hops that we sent you some malt. I appreciate it. Well, cool. Okay, guys, take care. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Whee! Man, it's always fun to talk to those guys, and uh, nice Pilsner, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, Jeff and Susan definitely take their German beers very seriously, as you can tell, and I thought that was remarkably well executed. So I can't wait to see what else we get out of it. <laughs> yeah, what I thought was really cool was that they went for the spirit of the beer rather than the exact process, right? Yeah. Uh, no decoction mash, none of that crap. Uh, but they they kept the hop schedule pretty close to the same. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely your homage beer, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, they were not trying to go for a clone, which, yay, I'm glad about because clones can yeah. be a little bit much. Uh, so yeah, no, I thought overall it was it was really good, and uh, now it makes me want to go back out there and work on my pilsner. <laughs> I don't know, man. I I may wait until the weather warms up a little bit. It's uh, in the fifties and raining here today, so it's not exactly pilsner weather. Yeah, not not here. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet not. Huh? Well, probably probably uh, where Jeff and Susan are in Michigan, it's a lot more like my weather than yours too. Probably. Well, okay. So uh, I think it's time to move on to wrap this thing up, huh? Yeah, and it's going to be a real short uh, finish this week, so stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. Welcome back. We're going to wrap things up and let you guys go do something more valuable with your time. Uh, we're going to skip the questions and answers this week and go right into the quick tip, which I've got for you, which is track your inventory. If you buy stuff in bulk, it's a really, really good idea to make your life easier by keeping track of how much you use, how much you have left. Uh, I'm not very good about that with hops, but I'm real good about that with grain. I uh, have a bunch of big plastic storage tubs that I use. I can get two 50-pound bags in each one. And what I do is I just stick a piece of paper on the outside of it that says what malt I've got and how much I've used. So then I always know how much I've got left. If I'm getting ready to brew a beer, it's a real quick and easy way to look and see what I've got on hand to do it with. So whether you buy grain in bulk, whether you buy hops in bulk, uh, whether you even just buy individual packages, if you have more than a few, it's a really good idea and will make your life a lot easier if you keep track of what you've got. 
I know that sounds suspiciously like balancing your checkbook. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's a little bit more fun than that. All right. And then, of course, we always leave you with something other than beer. But since it's been a while, we decided that we had a couple things to share with you. So I'm going to go first. Then, Denny, you can go. Uh, one thing I wanted to share, there's this, uh, uh, I think she's 10 years old, uh, a British girl who is a drummer named uh, Nandy Bushell. And she decided to challenge Dave Grohl, a.k.a. drummer of Nirvana and, you know, master of all things for the Foo Fighters, to a drum battle. And she posted a video of her doing, I think it was uh, Everlong by Foo Fighters, and, you know, called Dave out to, to battle her on drums. And so Dave came back and, you know, challenged her with a song that he did with one of his bands. And then she came, she responded doing the, the song. And then Dave, in what I think must be like the most epic move of rocker dad energy, came back and said, Nandy, you won, and made her a really kick-ass theme song. About uh, and Nandy being a supergirl, best drummer in the world. And it was just like, you know, watching this, it, one, it was great to see this girl wailing her heart out on those drums. And not only that, not only being a, an actually really good drummer for a 10 year old, but also just having a freaking blast doing it. Yeah, she's really cool, man. Yeah. And I know she's been on Ellen and a couple of other things, but, you know, she's just. She in this whole thing, she's just having fun, and damn it, that's what uh, that's what playing the drums should be. <laughs> uh, you know, I played a lot of instruments through the years, and drums is the hardest thing I've ever tried to play. Well, because the problem with drums is that you you know you you literally have to retrain your brain to be able to do the not only the pat your head and rub your tummy and then reverse it trick, but a couple of other things all at the same time. So <laughs> it's bananas. Yeah, I, I know, man. It just. Phew. No thanks. Too much for me. She was amazing. She made it so that I will never try to play drums again. Yeah, but a very awesome set of videos. We'll include a link so you can get into the middle of the drum battle if you haven't seen this. And also, if nothing else, it's just great to see uh, Dave Grohl rocking big dad energy. (laughs) Yeah, it was great, man. All right, you want to talk about the grandfather paradox before we come back to me? Okay, uh, get ready. This is going to blow your mind. It certainly blew my mind. I can barely even comprehend it, but uh, let me just kind of like... I was going to say, warning, you may need a better class of drugs than what we have right now for this. (laughs) Yeah, really. Let me just kind of go through this uh, article here really quickly. It's from The Independent, and we'll put a link up to it because you have to read it because I'm not going to explain it very well. But uh, scientists in Australia claim to have proved that time travel is theoretically possible after solving a logical paradox. And, you know, this is the the famous thing that's known as the grandfather paradox, uh, where Einstein's theory says that uh, there's a possibility you could use a time loop to travel back in time in order to kill your grandfather. But the classical dynamics people say that means that the death would culminate in the time traveler not existing in the first place, right? Because your grandfather hadn't existed. So they actually figured out a way to prove mathematically that you could do that and solve this paradox. And I, you know, I, there's no way I can wrap my head around what kind of math would be required for that. <laughs> but 
so they used the the COVID epidemic as uh, kind of like the the scenario that they were going to use, and uh, they imagined a time traveler trying to go back in time and prevent patient zero from being infected with COVID. Now, Einstein's theory allows for the possibility of time travel, but the science of dynamics would mean that the fundamental sequence of events couldn't be interfered with, so you couldn't uh, actually stop it. But this is because if the time travelers succeeded in preventing the virus from spreading, we'd eliminate their initial motivation to go back there, right? So, (laughs) yeah. Uh, So... But if in this example, uh, you might try and stop the patient zero from becoming infected, but in doing so, you would catch the virus and become patient zero, or someone else would, Mr. Tobar said. No matter what you did, the salient events would just recalibrate around you. This would mean that no matter what your actions, the pandemic would occur, giving your younger self the motivation to go back and stop it. Try as you might to create a paradox, the events will always adjust themselves to avoid any inconsistency. Does that blow your mind? Like, whoa, man, that's that's heavy. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, and they prove this mathematically somehow, which brings back of, uh, memories of uh, being in math class and having the teacher say, okay, now show your work. <laughs> train leaving Chicago runs into a bus going to Milwaukee. Um, yeah, yeah, and and what was the driver eating? Yeah. All right. So from that, which will probably break your brain, to something that it will arguably soothe your brain, at least if your brain's wired the way mine is. There is on YouTube a channel called My Mechanics, and I just stumbled across this a couple of weeks ago, and it's this Swiss dude who has a nice little workshop, uh, all metal basically. And what he does is he has viewers and other people send him these old, corroded, rusty, broken, not functional tools that look like they should just be slagged into, you know, new ore. And he restores them. And these videos are like, you know, 20 some odd minutes long. And there's no voiceover, and it's just like him literally showing you the whole process, like, you know, washing the parts, disassembling the device, and, you know, sandblasting everything, making new screws or rivets or parts where things are too bad. And I have to admit, it's kind of strangely soothing to sit there and watch this guy (laughs) take these things that look just hopeless and turn them into something that, that works again. And so, like, things like antique rebar cutters. Or, you know, uh, what was the one? Uh, yeah, he had a, the, one of the questions is always about a, uh, the ship of Theseus uh, paradox. Because uh, he had one thing that he just did, which was like an antique pruning saw that somebody found uh, frozen in the Swiss Alps and sent it to him. And it basically the only parts that were left on this whole handsaw were the two brass guards that attached the blade to the, the to the shaft. <laughs> so everything else he remade, including the blade. So it's like, wait, hold on. Ship of Theseus. Um. <laughs> you know, man, that it's a little bit like one of our previous something others uh, for the repair shop, you know, yeah. which I found very relaxing also, although they did talk in that one. Yeah, and to this, to me, this one's fascinating because he does a lot of things like, well, you know, obviously some of the solder gear, you know, they're rivets and whatnot that you can't get or bolts that you can't necessarily get because they're non-standard sizes. And so... 
he has a, a, a CNC and a lathe, and he sits there and, I'm going to make my own screws. I'll make my own bolts yeah, well, for this. That, and that's not real unusual for people who repair that kind of stuff, but it's amazing to watch them actually do it. Okay, enough is enough. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel. You can find both of us uh, all over the place. I'm in a lot of different forums, the uh, AHA forum, uh, the Beer Garden. Uh, you know, there's... Go out there to a beer forum. I may be there. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 